take a moment again to, to pause and pray before we hear God's word. Lord, I ask that whatever it is that you wish to say to us, that you create in us uh, an ability to hear that. Create in us a desire to listen. Maybe sometimes we turn ourselves off or close ourselves off because we don't want to hear what you might say, but I pray throughout the service as we've heard of your goodness that, that we might learn again of your goodness and your love and that that might encourage us and spur us on to be curious about what you might have to say. So come Holy Spirit, for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are in a series called The King and the Kingdom, and this is response to what I've experienced, and maybe you've experienced it as well, over the past couple weeks of the intensity that has come with, and all the other feelings that have come with continuing to wade through this pandemic we're in, knowing the, the struggles of our own experience and that there are so many more that people around this world are facing. It's it's the knowledge that right now in our country there is a movement for racial justice that is marching through our streets that we need to pay attention to and listen to and learn from. It's about an election day that's fast approaching and all the turbulence that comes with that. And so I wanted to, to take time to reflect on the message of scripture and what it says about God as king, as a true ruler of this world, and, and how God uses power in this good and awesome and honorable way. Last week, we learned about that when we considered God as the almighty creator of this world, who makes this world beautiful and wonderful and good with a particular order. And, and we, we reflected on how our allegiance, the deepest part of who we are, is reserved for God alone. Our hearts and who we are is to pledge no allegiance to any ruler or person or party except to God. And yet, we're also talking about uh, the kingdom of God here. Jesus, when he comes on the scene in the New Testament, shows up saying, the kingdom of God has come near. And I've been to seminary, I'm still trying to make sense of what that phrase means. What does that mean for me personally that God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign is present here and now for me? What does it mean also for our communities and this world? We reflected last week about how we are to give awe and wonder to the beauty of God's creation and also enter into this vocation of care for each other and for this creation. So we've, we, we are going to move through this story of scripture and the next segment that I think is important in understanding God as this king and ruler and what it means to live in response to God is God as a mighty rescuer. And this is important because the story we're going to get into in Exodus, the beginning of Exodus, Exodus 3, is a story that Israel, God's people, are constantly referring back to. And Jesus' own ministry and the way he weaves salvation into this world for us all 
has parallels to this story in Exodus. So today we're going to learn about God as the, the king and mighty redeemer who opposes all corrupt and unjust leaders and how we are invited to take part in that confrontation. Like I said, we're going to read Exodus 3. And you might be familiar with this. It's a story of God showing up to Moses in the burning bush. But it's more than just a bush that's on fire and for some reason doesn't get burnt up. Something that I think is happening is this confrontation between God, who's the king and ruler of the world, and Pharaoh, who's in charge of the largest empire in the world at that time. And before we get into reading this passage, I like to think about different analogies and images that help me make sense and really uh, make things concrete. And the thing that I was thinking about that might help to make this concrete, this cosmic clash of forces, um, might be like the superhero movies, like the Marvel movies, the DC movies. Uh, for reference, go watch uh, Infinity War. Make sure you watch all 700 movies that come before that um, so you can get what's happening. But one, one thing that I find helpful um, is The Lord of the Rings. Maybe you know it by J.R. Tolkien. And I'm going through it slowly right now. I made it a couple hundred pages in. And I find this an important way of grasping onto this cosmic confrontation that goes on in Exodus 3. If you don't know about The Lord of the Rings, I'll provide you a, a very quick synopsis. So there's this land where there are humans, there are dwarves, there are elves, there are goblins, and of course, hobbits, these small little halfling creatures. And in this land called Middle-earth, there are 19, ring, 19 rings of power made by elves to help govern the people of the earth. But there was this king, this lord, who was evil. His name was Sauron. Truly not a good dude. He forged one all-powerful ring, kind of like a master key, which he could use to control all other rulers and enslave all people on earth. He built up armies to enslave and conquer. Again, not a good dude. To make a long story short, the ring was cut off his hand, leaving him nearly powerless except to kind of like haunt people as this all-knowing fiery eye. Men didn't have the gumption or the, the ability to destroy this when they had the chance because they liked the power that it gave to them. Eventually, it winds up in the hands of this unlikely character called Bilbo, this hobbit, this halfling, who passes it on to his much younger cousin, Frodo. And the story is about how Frodo and his friends need to take this ring to the most dangerous place on earth to throw it in the volcano where the ring is made, destroying it and Sauron as well. Gandalf, this wizard, shows up and tells him he has to go on this quest and also tells him that he's probably going to die and this probably won't succeed. But he could take along his friends, other halflings, other hobbits, but they probably weren't going to be much help. <laughs> and yet, Gandalf did believe and have hope that Frodo could do it. So, out the door of Mount Doom, they out toward Mount Doom, they go. Lord of the Rings is this 
is this clash. It's an epic tale. And a lot of epic tales that are told in pop culture or in novels kind of harken back to the conflict of good and evil that is laid out in Scripture. And the way in which we believe and the hope is that good can overcome evil. There's this clash between a harsh, unjust, evil ruler, Sauron or Pharaoh, and the forces of good embodied by the fellowship of the ring in Gandalf and the hobbits and others who join. And represented by the God that we see and meet in scripture. This character that we meet about God in scripture is, is fascinating and I just want to take time to set this up a little bit for you as well. The first book of all scripture begins with this portrait of God who's all-powerful, loving, loving, generous, and good. A supreme being who even cares for the world when the world turns away from God and falls into brokenness. God doesn't give up, but chooses a family, a broken, messed-up family, to be certain, through whom God will bless the world. And, and God speaks promises to uh, a guy named Abraham and says that your son Isaac and you, his son Jacob and his sons will bring a blessing to the world. And so the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham, who's named Joseph, a youngest of 12 siblings, is the one who brings this promise to the global scene. Although it wouldn't seem as such because at one point his brothers hate him and he's thrown into his pit, a pit by his brothers and then eventually sold into slavery into Egypt. And so Joseph is in Egypt, but he makes his way up and rises to number two in power in all of Egypt, which at that time is the greatest nation in the world. And so Joseph rising to power as number two meant that he was the number two most powerful person in all the world. And through Joseph, God's hand is mysteriously there, blessing the world through Joseph's wisdom because Joseph saves food in rich times so that people don't starve during a famine that comes later on. And so Genesis ends with this incredible portrait of a, a family who's reconciled, Israelites who are fruitful in multiplying in number, and a world that is blessed all because of this great gift of this wonderful ruler and king. But you turn a page, and we meet a threat to that created order. The king of Egypt, who loved Joseph and his God, has died. Many years pass, and a new king comes to power, a king who is jealous, a king who is hateful, a king fearful of the Israelites. So, this king enslaves them. Pharaoh is this word for king. And so this king makes life really difficult. Egypt is known as this, as, as meaning a narrow, confining space. So life was suffocating for God's people there in Egypt. And Pharaoh even took away their future by instructing the Egyptian midwives to kill Israelite babies if they were male. So you see it. God, who provides blessing and life to all people in the earth, and then Pharaoh, who favors only his own kind, 
to the harsh exclusion of others. So the Israelites groaned under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry eventually rose up to God, who heard their groaning and remembered promises made long ago and decided that it was time to act. So the, the moment that we catch up to Moses in our story, Moses has grown up in the king's house, but he has fled into the wilderness because he one day got in between an Egyptian who was beating an Israelite. Moses steps in, kills the Egyptian, and he has a huge problem on his hand because he's now a murderer to Egyptians, and now the Israelites are scared of him as well. So he flees and takes up residence as a sheep herder in his father-in-law's home. But God shows up to change all that. Let's read this story, Moses and the Burning Bush. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I have to go see. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile land and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. What strikes me about this passage is the wording, the verbs that are used. I have seen the oppression, God says. I have have heard their cries. I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue and lead them out to a spacious place. God sees the oppression, hears the cries, is aware of the suffering, and comes to rescue If I take a step back for a second, there are these questions that begin to pop up, and I want answers to them. 
why does it take so long for God to act? Why doesn't God prevent Pharaoh from coming to power? Why doesn't God just change the heart of Pharaoh? And when I think about these questions, I can offer only few, if any, answers, and it's really frustrating. And maybe these are questions that you ask, too, about the, the events that play out in Scripture or day-to-day. Honestly, I think it's good to reflect on these questions, but that we won't ever have all the answers. It's good to reflect on God's timing, but Jesus even said that he didn't know all the ways that God was going to bring about things in their timeline. So what I'm saying is that I don't think that we should get too lost in trying to parse out whether God is active in this person or that person. We shouldn't stargaze and try to interpret the signs and say that this person is an agent of God and this person is Satan. Because Life is more complex than that, and the truth is we can't know. God has worked mysteriously through people in all of Scripture. But in this this series, I want to focus on what we can know about God, that mighty rescuer. And so let us note the things, the values of God that God has from the beginning of Scripture until its end. How God rejects leaders like Pharaoh who are proud, who are greedy, who are deceitful, who are self-indulged, driven mad with lust for power or people or possessions, driven mad to figure out how they can keep their power or how they use force in despicable ways. I believe God turns a deaf ear to those who cannot admit that they are wrong, who only see their agenda, who can't listen to others, who cannot empathize with others even if they have a difference of opinion. Rather, this story teaches us that God hears the cries of the distress, the broken, the hurting, welcomes the stranger, the outcast, the broken, the lowly. God is continually on the side of the poor, the weak, the powerless, the oppressed, the lonely, the sick, the dying those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice to roll down like mighty waters. We need to be seeing that God is not just this person who has opinions about things that are going on, but God is the king and ruler who gives, who, who desires power to be used in the manner to how God uses power. Anything less is something God opposes. In every nation, from the highest officers of our land down to civil places, to the organizations and even to the churches that we are a part of, power is judged by our God according to how God uses power and displays power and wants power to be exhibited to help those who are lowly, for the parents who are struggling with tough decisions. For us to respect each other by wearing masks out in public. By caring about those who might be right now being forced out of their homes or their apartments. 
using power to find ways to meet the needs of hunger for people who are food insecure, to find ways to comfort those who are struggling with loneliness, to find ways to join in the march or the movement of racial justice for people of color. I pray that you take hope that God hears and listens and rescues. We may not know how exactly God is at work, but God is working, and God will see it through. As surely as God saw those Israelites from that point of slavery out into freedom. But it doesn't happen without participation by Moses. And so that's the part where we come in. Where we are invited into the story. I'm going to read the next part of this chapter. God says, now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead your people out of Egypt? I will be with you, God says, and this is your sign that you will worship me on this very mountain when you have brought your people out. But who will listen to me? Moses said. And what shall I tell them? God replied, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you to you. Moses was called to be a messenger of these good things, a messenger of God's goodness, of God's justice, of God's care for people with his words and with his actions. And, and Moses had trouble seeing that and responding to that. Moses debated God. I can't go. I can't go. I can't speak. I can't do this. And perhaps we can understand that. If God asked us to speak truth in the halls of power, what might we say? I know I would say, why would they listen? There are many ways in which we disqualify ourselves as being fit to take our place in God's confrontation with these things. And yet, God says, I will go with you, and I will prepare you along the way. And God, we have to trust that God will do that. And it is our trust in that that needs to raise the courage to step into that work. Going back to the Lord of the Rings for a second, there's a conversation between Gandalf and Frodo. Frodo's wondering if he's enough for the moment that has found him, and Gandalf says this. Saruman believes it's only great power that can hold evil in check. But that's not what I have found. It's the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. I think there's something truthful here. Small acts of kindness and love that God uses to keep the darkness at bay and overcome evil in this world. And so we might never go walking down Pennsylvania Avenue toward the White House or the Capitol building, but the streets we walk upon and the places we go are nonetheless important as well. 
And so what are the small acts of kindness that we need to sow in daily interactions? What are the works of love that move us to fight for something better in the communities and our institutions around us? What is within my control to not just keep the darkness at bay, but offer a message that God hears the cries, is here among us, and is overcoming evil with good? Let's pray. Lord God, between the words that I have spoken and the words that have been heard, I pray that your Holy Spirit is powerfully present. In Jesus' name, amen.